You are listening to Wait a Minute with Beth and Jessica. Episode 33. Hi, I'm Jessica Pearson, Certified Body Image and Weight Loss Coach. And I'm Beth Barnett-Babel, Integrative Nutrition Therapist. So today we have our special guest, Rebecca, and you're going to have to say your last name because I don't think I've ever said it out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Medansky. Rebecca Medansky of Lady Bird PT. We used to be office mates. Yeah. I miss those days. <laughs> I know that was in the before times. It wasn't the before times. <laughs> My how things have changed. Yes. Indeed. Well, for you, the better. Your office is growing and you just got the new office and you have like a full team now. Yeah. Whereas when you were with us, I think you just had one other person, right? Yeah. When I started renting out of your space, it was just me. And then I had a contractor who joined me for a couple months before COVID and she moved to France. And now we have a team of five physical therapists and two front office angels. And it's, it's crazy. It's yeah, it's crazy, but I'm still like literally an eighth of a mile down the road from where we were. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is a great location. So if you are a listener and you're in Austin, Rebecca's office is in South Austin near the central market. So we're going to talk about pelvic floor and how it relates just to... Yeah, it does relate to diet culture and just the whole shebang. Because I recently came back to some of these PT exercises that you had shared with me. And I had this kind of aha moment where I realized like a lot of the tensions that I carry... Because that was also news to me, right? Was when I... After I had a baby and I went into Rebecca's office and we did multiple exams, what had come up for me was that I actually carry a lot of tension, which was interesting because in my mind, I'm like, everything feels loose, right? I'm leaking and like, I can't run without peeing. And it's just like, how could that mean that I have tension? And so she really explained all of that to me. But recently, and we'll talk more about that, but... I realized a lot of the bad habits that I picked up, part of it was growing up as a dancer where our physical form was so important, but we weren't learning how to breathe using our pelvic floor. We weren't doing diaphragmatic breaths or anything like that. And then also just being a woman in the world, right? Like we feel like, oh, if I wear this outfit, I need to suck in. Or there is like snapback culture or bounce back culture. And now high-waisted jeans are in fashion. And I just realized like, oh my gosh, this goes so much deeper than I realized. And I didn't even know what a pelvic floor therapist was until you were in our office. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you and most people, it's not a well-known profession still, despite the fact that it's so much better known now than it was even five years ago. Hmm. Yeah. So like if I had not have known that you've even existed, if you had not shared that office with us, I don't know if I would have even known to come see you during pregnancy or postpartum because that's not currently standard of care. It's not something that is just made known out into the world. And even when I talk to a lot of my mom friends about having a pelvic floor therapist, they're like, why? What? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and some of them do. And you do, I mean, you do have a lot of following. Obviously your office is growing. So people do know about you, but I just, I wanted to have like a really good chat today so that anybody that doesn't know will fully have some understanding. By the yeah. End. Well, I am, I'm excited to be here and I'm excited to talk to you about all this because it is, I mean, it really is complex. It's so much more than just like pelvic floor muscles. It is all the stuff that you already mentioned, like how a diet culture and all of these other things and body image plays into our physical health and how it really does impact us in a very real physical way. And so I'm excited to chat. Awesome. 
So I do want to just kind of, before we really dive into some of the nitty gritty, I kind of want to lay the foundation for the listeners who might not know exactly what you do yet. Like I said, I didn't know what a pelvic floor therapist was until I met you. And I know that most people associate this need with pregnancy or postpartum, but after everything I've learned, it does seem like really anyone could benefit from understanding this particular muscular structure and how this can be beneficial. So like, do you see other clients that aren't people who have been pregnant? Yeah, totally. So I would say, I mean, because we are pre and postnatal specialists, a lot of our patient population is pregnant or postpartum, but that still probably only accounts for like 50 to 60% of our patient population. We see a ton of people who've never been pregnant. We see kids, we see men. So totally, I mean, all genders, all ages have a pelvic floor and can be affected by pelvic health conditions. And we have research now that shows that even in middle school girls and middle school kids, we have high rates of urinary incontinence of pelvic pain. So Mm. totally, this is not just a pre and postnatal problem. Yeah. I was actually just thinking about how like you grew up. I mean, I remember like I could hold in a poop for days. Yeah. I mean, that's a trained, that's a trained skill. Like we're not born able to do that. So, um, yeah, we're a poop camel. Totally. (laughs) Well, because it's like, I feel like there's this whole, it's like a gender stigma too. Growing up in the eighties, it was like, girls don't fart, girls don't poop. Or even like in the dating world, you're like the first night you spend with a, like a date, you're like, oh my God, if I sleep and I fart, it's the end of our relationship. This is where it all breaks down. It's like so messed up, right? But it's like, oh my gosh, so these are learned behaviors. And I'm like, well, no wonder I had so much tension. Yeah. Or just holding in pee because you're like, I'm not allowed to get up in the middle of class and go to the bathroom. Yeah, so, absolutely. Pelican I am function. a pee camel, 100%. Still <laughs> yeah. am. I'm concerned for my 70s, but for now, still holding it together. <laughs> the reality is if you are not peeing pooping when you feel the urge to, assuming that you're getting an urge at a normal, like a normal frequency, you are stretching your rectum or your bladder, right? Like you are yeah. distending that organ. And that means that all of the little mechanoreceptors those mechanical receptors that live in that tissue that when they get stretched are supposed to be like, Hey Beth, go pee. They get, they learn over time. Oh, I hear them. (laughs) I'm just like, now's not a good time. This literally just happened to me. I was somehow Delta allowed me to book a flight that the connection, uh, my connecting flight was boarding at the same time that my flight was landing So I had like no time to go to the bathroom because I had to traverse the airport to um, make my flight. And then I was the window seat and I was like, oh my God. And they all fell asleep. And I was (laughs) sitting there going, oh no. I don't know. That's when you wake them up. I know, (laughs) but I really didn't want to. And I was like, I think make it. (laughs) And I did. And I was like, that was so dumb. I didn't want to. And I I normally would, but for some reason at this flight, I was like, I was, yeah. I have a healthy enough fear of getting a UTI that I will wake those people. Uh, I also will book an aisle seat. If we're not flying Southwest, I'm like aisle seat just so that I can Mm -hmm. go to the bathroom, which only started in my thirties, right? (laughs) Anyways, we we digress. We digress, but we, we do. I have a lot of clients where I'm like, they don't drink water and they don't drink because they're like, I don't like to pee. Yeah. And it's like this whole thing. So that is part of it, right? So, what are some other symptoms or concerns that people might come see a pelvic floor therapist for? So, pelvic floor physical therapists really treat 
symptoms that are associated with anything from like rib cage to knees. They are a good pelvic floor physical therapist should also be a skilled orthopedic physical therapist. They should be able to look at their patients from head to toe because everything affects our core and our pelvic floor from the way that we walk to the way that we move to the way that we like the shoes that we wear, right? Like everything has an impact on everything up the chain. Our body is connected, but traditional pelvic floor symptoms starting like top down can be back pain, abdominal pain, cramping with periods. So like severe pain, endometriosis is a common condition that we treat the pain associated with diastasis recti, if we're thinking like the abdominal stuff. And then we have our more pelvic focus conditions, like urinary urgency, urinary frequency. So feeling like when you need to go, your body screams at you really quickly rather than that like slow building urge. Feeling like you have a small bladder or feeling like you have to pee all the time is also a pelvic floor condition. People do not have small bladders unless they've had bladder cancer or some operation impacting the size of their bladder. Obviously, urinary incontinence, which we've touched on, constipation, pain with bowel movements, tailbone pain, SI joint pain, pubic symphysis pain. I'm like just going through the gamut of like hip pain, right? Hip dysfunction. All of these things are common pelvic floor dysfunction. And then pain with sex, pain with orgasm, inability to orgasm, decreased sexual sensation. All of these are like, this is what we treat all day, every day. Yeah, that's such a wide array of things. And I feel like when people think of pelvic floor, they just think Kegels. Why are Kegels like (laughs) the thing that the only thing that mainstream people talk about? (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) I wish we could see your face. You're just like, oh. I mean, honestly, I think it's I think it's because a man developed them and it's like worked its way into our typical medical wisdom that like anything that's wrong down there in quotations, just do some Kegels and it'll fix it. But the problem is like you mentioned that a lot of people have tension, particularly a lot of people. When we start looking at this from the diet culture standpoint, a lot of people have tension and Kegels are a contraction. So if you have a tight bicep, are you going to do a hundred bicep curls a day to make it more flexible? Like not know, right? Like I think that we generally have that sense about other muscles. If you have a tight muscle, you should probably start stretching it instead of strengthening it. Although like, yes, the truth is that sometimes you need both, but for the pelvic floor, oftentimes people are like, I have this one thing going on in my pelvis. I'm going to start doing a ton of Kegels because that's what I'm supposed to do. And then a year later, everything's worse or nothing's changed at Mm. all because Kegels are either the wrong thing to do altogether because it's rare that somebody really just needs isolated pelvic floor muscle contractions, such as what a Kegel is, or you're part of the 50% of the population who can't coordinate that contraction correctly. So you think you're doing a Kegel, but you're bearing down or you're contracting your glutes or you're holding your breath or whatever it is that people do instead of actually activating the pelvic floor muscles that they can't find. Yeah. I think I saw that first, maybe before I even saw you, we were office mates, but you had said this on an Instagram post and I was like, my mind was blown (laughs) because all I knew about was Kegels. So thank you. And I mean, I don't mean to knock, like, I think that anything anybody knows about pelvic health, like even if people know to do Kegels, hopefully that means that they know that there's something that can be done to help, like to help address pelvic health conditions. So if that's where you start, I mean, like, whatever, fine. If it doesn't help, it doesn't help. But I think that people need to know that there are a million other things that we can do to address pelvic floor dysfunction. And for plenty of people, Kegels aren't even part of the program. Yeah. It sounds like Kegels are the carbs 
of the nutrition world. Yes, that is <laughs> such a good quote. That's so good. <laughs> Oh, good one, Jessica. It's like we could talk about carbs all day long, right? And we've done a podcast on carbs because it's just, it's the same thing in the diet world. They're like, let's just never eat a carb again. We're like, wait, what? Can you you please title this episode, Kegels are the carbs? (laughs) (laughs) All the floor world. Because I just... So accurate. (laughs) Done. (laughs) Let's do talk about some of this culture, right? So there's like, how does the diet culture play into this pelvic floor world, right? And just all of it. So first let's talk about sucking in because I feel like that is a thing that I've done my whole life that we don't really... I think we, we don't even think about it. Right. I feel like like yeah. maybe your mom, maybe your dance teacher, maybe it's like the whole time it's like suck in. Right. Like that's, I feel like that's a message that I really adopted and I still, yeah, do, I still it. do it. Yeah. So tell me why should we not suck in? And yeah. And like, and can, and part of that, can you explain like there's the sucking in, which I feel like is more holding your breath and trying to snap it all in versus like holding our core to be strong and balanced. Yeah. Stable. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question and like also a really good detail, Beth, because I think that confuses a lot of people, including our patients. As far as sucking in, I think to really explain why that is problematic, we need to start with a brief anatomy lesson, which is a little bit difficult to do via a podcast. I'm going to do my best. But your pelvic floor lives like a bowl at the bottom of your pelvis. So like if you can imagine between your sit bones and between your pubic bone and your tailbone, there's a bowl sitting down there. Mm -hmm. And then there's another bowl that's sitting up at the top of your rib cage, but facing the other way. So like the pelvic bowl is facing up, like it's holding chips. And then the diaphragmatic bowl, if we can call it that, is sitting at the bottom of the rib cage, but upside down. And those two bowls are supposed to move together when you breathe. What's supposed to happen when you breathe is your diaphragm descends. So that top bowl that's upside down draws downwards towards your feet. That allows your lungs to fill with air. And your pelvic floor is supposed to drop down and sink down towards your feet also as you breathe because it's like there's space in there and you need to make room for it as your lungs are filling, right? So as your lungs fill with air, those two things push down. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it does to me because I just went to like a body work class for last okay. week and we did all this. So in my head, I can see all this pain. If it doesn't make sense to a listener, <laughs> what you really need to know is that as you breathe, your pelvic floor is supposed to descend and stretch and relax to make room for basically to make room for your lungs to expand, but like by transitive property. Right. At the same time as you breathe, what's supposed to happen as your diaphragm and as your pelvic floor are dropping your belly needs to be able to relax and expand to do the same thing. Those are the three things that move as you breathe. Your Well, four things. Your lungs fill with air, your diaphragm and your pelvic floor drop, and your belly expands. So you're making room for that breath. But when we're sucking in, what we're doing is we're saying, okay, we're going to take a third of that system. We're going to put a stiff wall in the place of what's supposed to be a stretchy, expandable wall. And now there's way more pressure to manage between the diaphragm and the pelvic floor. So there's way more stress on the pelvic floor because mm-hmm. everything that would have been taken up by both the belly and the pelvic floor is now just being taken up by the pelvic floor. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when we suck in, we are messing with our the way that we breathe with every single breath. And I'm not talking like 
breathing practice and diaphragmatic breathing practice and the way that we think about how we breathe when we're in yoga class. I mean like every single breath that we take all day long. These are things that are naturally supposed to happen that do not naturally happen in a lot of people because we suck in. We wear high-waisted pants. We never let our abdomen expand. We don't even like to think about our belly being soft. And so people develop these stiff cores which to Beth's point about what's the difference between sucking in and engaging your core, a stiff core is not the same thing as a strong core. So like if I want to strengthen my hand, right? Like if I want to have a stronger hand so that I can rock climb better, I should not be walking around clenching my fist all day long. That is not going to make me a better climber, right? If you clench your fist and like if you're for our listeners or for both of you, if you're driving right now and you have one hand... (laughs) You have one hand. You clench your fist and you hold it clenched for, let's say, like 10, 20, 30 seconds, but do it hard, like 50% intensity. It's going to start to hurt. It doesn't feel good, right? And if you keep doing that and you do that for 12 hours a day, it's not going to make you a better rock climber. It's not going to make it easier for you to unscrew a jar. And then if you let go, it's hard to open up your hand. Right. So that's the difference between like stiffness and strength. So what we need from our core is we need it to be strong enough to support us when we're lifting something heavy or working out or picking up our kid or whatever, carrying a box from our car or our house. But we don't need it to be stiff a hundred percent of the time. Does that feel like yeah, I, I I resonate that because I know that's exactly what I've done my whole life. And that's why you're here. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this and, is crazy. And so to clarify, because I know people might have this thought go through their head that when it's for strength and you're just sitting in a chair, your core encompasses both your front muscles, then this, you know, on your side muscles, and then I know there's all technical terms for these. And then your front, and then your front. We are not pelvic floor therapists or physical therapists, so that's okay. I got you. So your ab, and then what is this? Your Your uh, obliques. Thank you. And then you have all your various back muscles. So those muscles work in conjunction to support each other to be strong. So if I were to be sitting, what I feel is some like some activation in my back to hold me up. My Mm -hmm. belly feels a little bit soft, but my side, my oblique are kind of somewhat activated and then my upper um, abdomen muscles are keeping my diaphragm from not being squished by me sinking down and rounding my lower back. Like that's strength versus um, my belly is soft and I'm not sucking in to hold me up. Yeah. So your core, your functional core is what you said. It's your front muscles, your side muscles, and your back muscles, right? It's Mm -hmm. like your rectus abdominis, your obliques, all of the paraspinals, the muscles along your back. But your Mm -hmm. core is actually also your pelvic floor and your diaphragm. Mm -hmm. Those are all postural muscles and they all work together to keep you up. So you're absolutely right. If you are sitting upright without back support, they will be partially activated because they're the only things that keep your body from just like crumpling to the ground. So they have to be on a little bit, but what the core is supposed to be able to do is automatically adapt to the challenge at hand. So Mm -hmm. you sitting up, you need, I don't, this is the, I'm pulling this out of my ass. You sitting up, let's say you need like 10% (laughs) of your strength to keep yourself there, right? Like, I don't, I'm sure there's some out there. I don't know what it is, but let's say it's 10% of your strength, 30% of your strength. Whereas Mm -hmm. like if you stand up and walk into the kitchen, maybe you'll need a little 5% more. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you have to go pick up a toddler, you'll need a little bit more. 
So strength in the core is this adaptive function that rises to the occasion, whereas sucking in is somebody who's creating a stiffness in their abdominal wall and refusing to allow the natural movement. Because your core is actually supposed to work as a shock absorber as well. There was a study that looked at somebody jumping off of a box and they looked at that person jumping off of the box if they had their core like really stiff versus if their belly was relaxed. And they found that in the people with the stiff core, there was way more force on the spine than the people with the relaxed belly because mm-hmm. it's a shock absorber. It's supposed to be able to relax and absorb the work. But if it's just stiff all the time, then like then we don't get that same shock absorbing function. Fascinating. Awesome. I have further questions, but I will <laughs> let them go. Well, pin them. Maybe we can come back to it. Well, I, my, my quick question was just like, so basically we're not supposed to have a super flat stomach 24 seven. No, I mean, it, listen, <laughs> in somebody who, if somebody, who has, if somebody has no abdominal adipose tissue, like can their stomach be fat, flat? Sure. For sure. Like if you have, if you are just have the body type where you do not carry fat tissue through your midsection, maybe that's natural for you. But I think that for the vast majority of the population, your belly should not be a rigid wall. Like you should be able to relax it when you're laying down. You should be able to relax it intentionally. Like it should not be stiff all the time. We should not be living our lives sucking in. Okay. Thank you. I'm really good at just letting it hang out. What? <laughs> I don't even realize it. I'm like, what I do when my sessions is teaching people to do that. Yeah. Well, there's so much. I mean, I remember sucking in from a very young age all the way through, but college. But at some point, I was like, oh, I let this baby go. Yeah. I just got lazy yeah. in a good way. <laughs> there's, I think a lot of people, like Rebecca said, just teaching the clients to relax yeah. because there's so much ingrained insecurity of like, I'm not supposed to let this relax. Yeah. And then on top of that, if you've been sucking in for 20 years, you have the ingredient (laughs) security and literally you don't have the flexibility in the muscle to let it go. (laughs) Right? Like you go back to that fist analogy. If you've been clenching your fist for the past 20 years, like you might actually literally not be able to open Mm. your hand anymore. Yeah. Um, so when we see people like that's where diet culture and also physical health are so intimately interwoven, cause you really need to start figuring out like, is it that you don't have literally the muscle length to do this? Or is this that your brain is so protective of this area that your body won't let it happen? Is it some combination of the two? Like it can be a, a big challenge for people. Hmm. Crazy. I do want to talk about just bounce back culture. Obviously, we've talked about some of the diet ramifications, but I do want you to talk about some of these physical ramifications because there's this imaginary six-week mark where we've been told that at six weeks, we're supposed to be ready to do CrossFit (laughs) or ready. And it's like just being okay with like, hey, we do need to work on some of these foundational, just small things before we move into some of the big stuff. For most of us, some people might be very athletic and they train throughout their entire pregnancy. Maybe they're ready to do it. But for the mass majority of us, it's like, what should we really expect at six weeks? Yeah. I mean, regardless of how athletic somebody is, there are timelines that research supports for physiological tissue healing are important to follow 
regardless of prior level of fitness, to reduce the likelihood of injury to the pelvic floor and even orthopedic injuries when you're returning to exercise after having a baby. So yes, people definitely have like wildly different experiences based on how active they were through pregnancy, their fitness baseline, their genetics, like factors they can't control. But I think that the timelines I'm going to walk you through really are true for everybody, whether they feel, if they feel slow, they're still true. If they feel fast, they might actually be too fast because like, this is kind of like the fastest progression people should expect. The six week timeline that people have been fed traditionally that they should be ready to get back to the things like exercise in six weeks, you'll be cleared for sex and exercise in six weeks or what people are told. Research and just like my entire clinical career of experience, both show that six weeks is both too long to wait to start gently rehabilitating the body because there's no other injury or surgery or case in our lives where we are recommended that we do nothing for six weeks after a major life event, right? Like that doesn't make a lick of sense. It don't make no sense. If people do not have the energy, the capacity, the time, the headspace, okay. Like that that's completely understandable. I'm not saying people need to begin rehabilitating prior to six weeks because it's never too late, but we are not doing anything to serve our recovery by trying to be on bed rest for six weeks while having to do all of the things that you have to do with taking care of an infant. So six weeks is really considered to be too long to do nothing and way too early to go back to high intensity exercise. So I like to break the fourth trimester, so zero to 12 weeks postpartum into four separate quadrants Mm -hmm. with the first three weeks being focused on rest and slowly increasing walking endurance and maybe re-engaging with our core and our pelvic floor to see if we can find these muscles, particularly if you worked with a PT during pregnancy and you know what those muscles are. And then the next few weeks, so like four to six weeks, is when I'll have people start working on mat-based exercises. So like leg raises and bird dog and like clamshells and hip squeezes and bridges and exercises to like wake up your postural muscles, your glutes, your core, everything, like just starting to work together, but in a gravity neutral position because you're laying down. Mm -hmm. Then if you're quote unquote cleared for exercise at six weeks, that's typically when I'll have people start doing body weight training. So like squats, lunges, step ups, no weight, no intensity, just like can we start moving your body through its full range of motion? And it's not really until nine weeks postpartum that it's recommended to begin adding resistance or even to consider impact. You really shouldn't be going back to running or impact activities until 12 weeks postpartum. So the earliest people should expect to be back at high intensity, like higher intensity exercise is three months postpartum. That's like, that's the earliest. That's like, you're feeling great. You're not having any symptoms postpartum. Your recovery is going awesome. You're eager to return to exercise. But I think that a more realistic timeline for people to get back to their full their full fitness routine and feeling like their full strength selves is more realistically six to 18 months and maybe even one to two years. I think that we do people a massive disservice by not giving them realistic expectations for postpartum recovery. Yeah. I feel that one to two year timeline, <laughs> mainly because it's like, for me, it was sleep and mental health were at the yeah. top of that. And I was like, I'm surviving. <laughs> so... We've had people come into our office at like four months postpartum or six months postpartum and they're just like, I got to lose the baby weight, you know, and they just feel really Mm -hmm. desperate to get back to it. And we're like, "Mm, 
let's just focus on some of these basics first. So it's really kind of the same thing, but there's just, there's so much pressure and I totally get it. It's like, you do have this whole different body. You have this whole different life and you just kind of want to feel like yourself again. You just want to feel strong and normal and get back to these routines. And so it's, it makes sense why, even if you're not feeling like it's the diet culture piece of it, why you are trying to grasp at some of this thing, but just as a good reminder, like it does take time and it can be one to two years. So totally. I think one to two years truly is a realistic expectation. Like pregnancy is a long experience. Birth is pretty intense and is a big physical trauma. And for a lot of people leading into pregnancy, also particularly if you have fertility struggles, there are changes to activity level and to function for like an entire year. So the fact that we can go through this progressive stress that leads or that ends in this like traumatic event for an entire year and expect to be ourselves in six weeks. Like I think when you really frame it as you're not recovering just from birth, you're recovering from everything leading up to it makes it a lot more obvious that like, I think if I said to anybody like, Hey, if you went through, let's say 12 months of like a really intense physical experience that ended in a trauma, like what would you expect your timeline of recovery to full function to look like? I don't think anybody would be like, Oh, I imagine I'll be back to everything I want to be doing in six weeks. It's just that we frame it that way, right? Like we don't prepare people for that and we don't educate them on how pregnancy affects the body. It's not just about birth. And then not to mention on the other side that we have like a lot of companies preying on the insecurity that people experience after birth. We have people with like waist trainers and belly bands. And yes, there are some that are like so incredibly valuable and really helpful from a therapeutic and rehabilitative standpoint, but there are certainly a lot more that are just like trying to sell a flat stomach to people. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like we're battling a lot of stuff. We're battling a lack of education. We're battling a culture that really preys on people who are having body image and like physical insecurities. And we don't do shit. I'm sorry to swear. We don't do shit to support postpartum people. We don't do anything to support people with babies in this country. And I mean, like, Mm -hmm. don't get me started, but like (laughs) all of the things, you know, like it's diet culture, it's politics, it's everything. Yeah. And like a lot of women are going back to work too around the six to 12 week mark, which is like, I've said this before, like Beth laughed at me when I was like, I just need like a month off. It'll be fine. And she was like, (laughs) (laughs) she's like, yeah, we'll see. And it's like, oh my gosh, you just, you don't know until you're in it, but it doesn't help that our culture and that our society does not do us any favors whatsoever. Mm. Yeah. I mean, not to mention the average of maternity leave in the United States is two weeks. Two weeks. Good. I I hadn't even barely back from the hospital by then. You're literally still bleeding. Literally still bleeding. Yeah. Mm. That's it. Makes me so sad. It's like really frustrating, especially when there's so many other countries. So like in other countries, this is standard of care, where like you might work with a pelvic floor therapist, or no. You tell me. Like I so. My industry for a really long time has quoted that like in France, pelvic floor physical therapy is a standard of care. What I have heard from people working in France is that the standard of care for postpartum recovery in France is to work with a midwife who is familiar with pelvic health and maybe work with a pelvic floor physical therapist. I think that there are countries that are more definitely, I mean, like the US is behind a hundred percent, but I don't think that there's anywhere that's like 
supporting people as much as they need to be supported the way that we like to imagine that there's like a place where all postpartum people are given like all the care that they need. But yeah, I mean, there are a lot of countries that have one to two years of maternity leave, right? Like, and we're over here battling, begging for a few weeks of FMLA. So yeah, for sure. It's, it is, there's, there are better standards of postpartum care in other places and we definitely don't have that. And I think part of it is it's tough to talk about these things without getting overly political. So like it's, there is capitalism affects this and the lack of universal health care affects this. And all of the things that affect like women's health care affects this. So why isn't this a standard of care in the United States? I mean, like we're actively reducing access to women's health and pelvic health care in the United States with the way things are going right now. Mm-hmm. So unfortunately, and I mean, like this is me, maybe being overly bitter, but like, I don't see it changing in the United States very soon. But I do think that people becoming better educated about the need for pelvic health care and also like the benefits of pelvic health care are going to force people to ask for it more and more, which hopefully will improve things like insurance coverage and will improve things like just the amount of pelvic health clinicians. Because when I started Ladybird Physical Therapy in Austin, I think there were three or four pelvic floor clinics. And now like I'm seeing a new one pop up every day. So I do think that the public becoming better educated and that like more and more conversations like this and more and more conversations between people who just gave birth, who are sharing openly what they're experiencing is really going to help access. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like that is just changing. I don't think our mothers had conversations as much as we did about their birth experiences or postpartum experiences, right? They just, it was the culture of just kind of suck it up and move on. Yeah. (laughs) Which like that also makes me really sad because I can't imagine not being able to lean into a support system. And because I knew that you existed, I, I kind of joke. I'm like, Rebecca was sort of also like, not really like a therapist, but it did feel just like such a safe space to be myself. And like, even just like certain physical symptoms, like I was not prepared for low estrogen. I did not know what that meant or what it looked like and that there would be these like weird symptoms in my body. And you were there to be like, this is totally normal. This is exactly what you should expect. Like, why didn't my doctor tell me any of this, you know? And so just knowing like, okay, I have my pelvic floor therapist. I have my therapist. Like, of course, having friends and family is helpful, but knowing that I had like professionals and people that knew what they were doing was really affirming for me and educational, right? So continuing to get the education and I'm that's why I'm very passionate on this topic. I tell all of my friends, if I'm in a in a mom's group and they're like, I can't go to the trampoline park because I'm going to pee my pants. I'm like, you got to call <laughs> Lady Bird PT, okay? Um, or go see a pelvic floor therapist because this is like, you don't have to live with some of these symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like when you think about how we're educated about our pelvic health, in the United States. Like, I don't know about you, but when I was in fifth grade, I think I was taught what my period was. Yeah. And then that was it. I think that was it. And then health class in high school, I was taught not to get pregnant. Yeah. They're like, just don't have sex. Right. (laughs) No, I mean, my my health class was like, condoms exist. You know, like we took it one step further. Where where did you grow up? (laughs) Reading, Pennsylvania. Is that a blue state? <laughs> a swing state. Yeah. So I think that we're just not educated on our bodies. Yeah. Like, I mean, sim- similarly with like what you guys do, we're not educated on nutrition either, right? It's like limit fat and sugar. And that's, I think, what we're taught on average. So I think that like just people becoming better acquainted with their bodies and being more open to talking about pelvic health, I think, is also huge. Because yeah. I think that's why our parents' generation 
I mean, first of all, there weren't as many like resources available for treating things. And if you can't treat it, like you got to laugh, right? I think that's where this like jokes about sneezing and peeing come in. Like if there's no option for you, what else are you going to cry? Like you may as well laugh. But I think now that we have treatment Mm -hmm. options available, now that people are starting to more openly talk about their bodies and their health, across all sides of like all sides of the health spectrum. I'm hopeful that's going to make a difference. Mm, Yeah. I have questions. Can you go and tell me about high-waisted clothing? Because you mentioned that. And so I want to know what that means. Yeah, totally. Because I'm not a fan of the new, of the rebirth of the high-waisted situation, but I also don't like the super lows either. So yeah. Can I just get some regular pants? <laughs> I'm like, where are the regular pants? Listen, I am <laughs> here for the latest 80s trend coming back of high-waisted pants aesthetically. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, high-waisted pants and like really tight leggings that go up. So like, the, I feel like the style that I see every woman at the gym wearing right now is like, high-waisted pants above their belly button, super thick, really stiff material mm. with a bra that's like kind of a shirt that comes down past the rib cage so that yeah. they're basically wearing a spandex suit across their midsection. Or you see people wearing like really stiff jeans that go up past the midsection. I'm very particularly here for like the loose pants that are coming back. Oh. You're able to see that coming back up into the target style guide. But so what all of that does is it basically wraps our rib cage and our midsection in a stiff ace bandage, right? Like it Mm -hmm. just wraps you in a really stiff line of fabric that artificially causes the sucking in sensation, Mm -hmm. but also because of, and like, I know you didn't ask about bras, but I think that I'm seeing it more and more of these bras that come down over the rib cage. I feel like I'm suffocating in those. I have like one or two and just like to try and I go for them almost never. And I'm like, why did I buy that second one again? Because I feel like I'm suffocating in it. Yes. Literally same. I have two. I think they're very cute. I cannot breathe in them. And so if your rib if your rib cage can't expand, if your abdomen can't expand, then if we go back to what we were talking about with breathing earlier, that natural breath becomes more of a chest breath. You start mm. breathing more into your chest, you get more mm-hmm. chest rising and way less rib and diaphragm and belly movement, which contributes to things like pelvic floor muscle tension, which contributes to symptoms like feeling like you have a small bladder or pain with sex. But mm-hmm. chest breathing also contributes to increasing cortisol levels. So yeah, like, and high blood pressure. pressure. Exactly. So I think that the clothing that we wear really does impact our health. And if people feel good in that clothing, like if that really is what feels good for their bodies, amazing. But for the people who are then further sucking in because because they're wearing something that's cueing them to suck in, mm-hmm. I mean, that's just like snowballing this effect. So I don't really feel like, like, I don't feel like nobody should be wearing this stuff, but I do feel like people should be paying attention to how their body feels when they're wearing something that's that tight around their midsection. And when Mm -hmm. I see people postpartum who are asking about belly bands for abdominal support for diastasis recti or for abdominal weakness, the thing that we always say is like, if you feel good in it, great, but it should never be so tight that it at all affects your breathing. Like even if you're wearing an abdominal brace therapeutically, it still shouldn't be stiff. It should be like a thin kind of hug to just cue your muscles a little bit to wake up. Mm. Okay. Awesome. I'm having this like aha moment that it's like, when I'm not breathing properly, I feel anxious. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, is my anxiety just 
from tight clothing. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to do that experiment. (laughs) Oh, okay. So we do have a few men that listen to our podcast. So can you talk to us about what you see in men and like how any of what all this relates to them? Totally. I, so full disclosure, I personally have not treated men for like three or four years, but I did at the beginning of my career for a while. Male pelvic pain is one of the biggest conditions that pelvic floor physical therapists treat that can be penile pain, rectal pain, testicular pain. Mm -hmm. Um, Men can also experience a lot of the same bladder symptoms. So like urinary urgency and frequency, particularly aging men who have enlarged prostates can Mm -hmm. experience different emptying their bladder, all those sorts of things. Other things that pelvic floor physical therapists can treat in relation to male anatomy specifically is like premature ejaculation, pain with orgasm. Similar but different, the conditions that impact men and the prevalence with which they impact them are a little bit different. Men are less less likely to experience things like urinary incontinence and Mm -hmm. pelvic organ prolapse, whereas those are more common in people with vulvas and vaginas. So physical therapy for People with penises looks similar in a lot of ways. It's still manual therapy, exercise, a lot of education, physical therapy for people with vaginas and vulvas, same thing, a lot of manual therapy, education, and home exercises. Gotcha. And so, and to circle around to all of our lady friends that have not experienced a pregnancy, many of the things that we have talked about in terms of like clothing and sucking in and stuff like that is very much related to their pelvic floor health. So they can, they, they don't need to have had a pregnancy in order to see a pelvic floor physical therapist. I want that to just be really clear because I think a lot of people assume those things go together and it's like, you don't, that it doesn't have to be just this one thing to, to get you and to support you need. A hundred percent. I have never been pregnant. I have no children and I have been in pelvic floor physical therapy on and off for years because I am type A I am super stressed out all the time. That's just who I am. And I clench my jaw. I have a tight pelvic floor. Like I am that, I am like the telltale pelvic floor tension person, right? I did Mm. yoga and Pilates for a long time. I did a ton of running and weightlifting. I was super active, super stiff. Mm -hmm. And I have pain with sex. I have tailbone pain. I have urinary urgency and frequency, like all of these symptoms that are tied into tension that is really well managed with pelvic floor PT Mm -hmm. as needed, but without it is really difficult to manage. And so I think it is super important to reach those people out there who have not been pregnant, who have all of these symptoms, because that is... So that's so much of what we see. Like we see so many teenagers and people in their early twenties who've never been pregnant, who have all of these symptoms. And not to mention if you have all these symptoms and then you get pregnant and give birth, it doesn't help. Like it doesn't get Mm -hmm. better with added stress and trauma to the pelvis. So a lot of people that we see postpartum are like, wait, I've had that. I've always leaked when I've jumped on a trampoline, like my whole life, this is not a pregnancy thing. Mm-hmm. Right, or it's not a postpartum thing. So that's one thing that we see a lot of in the clinic is people coming in during pregnancy or people coming in after having their baby, but being like, but this has been going on for 10 or 15 years. Mm-hmm. And chronic conditions take longer to get better. The sooner we address symptoms, the sooner they get better. So no matter where you are in your reproductive journey, pelvic floor PT can definitely still help. Great. Am I allowed to ask about the low estrogen comment? Because I remember Jessica telling me about something you were talking about, low estrogen. Yeah. I don't know if it will fit in, but 
I think it just would be good because it's so common because so many are on birth control pills. Totally. So birth control and lactation affect our pelvic health differently. So when people come in, and usually I have this conversation with people who are having bladder symptoms or sexual symptoms, people who are lactating, so during pregnancy, if we start with the pregnancy lens Mm -hmm. and estrogen lens, during pregnancy, your estrogen levels are rising. And mm-hmm. then immediately after the birth of the placenta, they plummet. And they plummet to below estrogen levels in like the, in the average male. Like they, they get close to nil. Mm-hmm. And our vulvar tissue and vaginal tissue is really estrogen dependent. Estrogen mm-hmm. keeps that tissue flexible. It keeps that tissue happy. It keeps that tissue lubricated. So when you have decreased estrogen after having a baby, and this is relevant for postmenopausal people also, is that decreased estrogen will open people up to bladder symptoms like urinary urgency frequency, like pain with sex, like dryness, like tearing at the vaginal opening, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So there are topical estrogens that can be really important for people who are postpartum and also super important for people who are peri or postmenopausal because once you hit menopause, at least when you are breastfeeding, supposedly for a lot of people, when you stop lactating, your estrogen levels can return to normal because lactation suppresses estrogen production. Mm-hmm. But after menopause, your estrogen levels will not return to premenopausal levels. So right. that means that topical estrogen cream is more of a long-term treatment, whereas during pregnancy or postpartum, specifically while you're lactating, it might just be a short-term benefit. Mm-hmm. I'll just say that for people that are concerned about estrogen and breast cancer and things, the the topical is not the same as oral and they do not have a contraindication for estrogen-based breast cancers. Yes, that is, that's a really important point. People are often really concerned about using a topical estrogen if they're concerned about estrogen dominant cancers, or if they're concerned about the estrogen making it into milk supply. And both things are really like research has investigated them and found both to be relatively safe. Although of course we always recommend that you talk to your medical provider. You have to have estrogen prescribed by a medical provider anyways. And then for people who have a history of oral contraceptives, what we see is that a history of oral contraceptives leads to low testosterone. And testosterone is equally, if not more important for vulvar and vaginal health. And Mm -hmm. so if people have a long history of oral contraceptives, oftentimes they'll need a topical testosterone or an estrogen testosterone cream to help replenish the hormones in the tissue and help improve tissue health. Great. And then what happens for like, say, for example, you, you may or may not know the answer to this, but say you were on birth control, like many people are from mid to late teens, all the way through maybe into their early thirties. And when they start having kids and then, so does that, like, how does that impact the long-term health, like of the estrogen testosterone of the tissue? Do they ever recover that? Or is that like a long-term depletion? For testosterone, so for estrogen, I say theoretically because this is not as well researched. Theoretically, Mm -hmm. because it's the lactation hormone that's suppressing estrogen creation, when you stop lactating, estrogen levels should return to baseline. And we do see a correlation between symptoms improving when people are no longer lactating. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a lot of evidence to suggest that estrogen levels will return to normal once we stop lactating. Mm -hmm. As far as testosterone, the like the conventional treatment is to use testosterone topically for after oral contraceptives to use it consistently for a period of time mm-hmm. and then the belief is that it returns to normal however i don't know if it's 
I don't know the answer and I, I've never seen studies on it. I don't know if they do or don't exist on whether long-term like 10, 15 year oral contraceptive use impacts our ability to produce testosterone and whether that topical ends up being a longer term treatment. I'm not sure. Okay. Hormones are so complex and <laughs> it seems like it's really challenging to find doctors uh, that specialize in female hormones and understanding it. And that, I think that education is lacking. Like you explaining the low estrogen thing to me was totally news to me. No one had ever shared that information with me. And then also when I stopped nursing, I definitely had another wave of hormone fluctuations that like I was not prepared for. But like, as it happened, I was like, oh, I get what's happening. But it like, nobody tells you in like a lactation class, like, by the way, when you stop, when you wean, you might have another episode or whatever, you know? And it's just like, why don't we know these things? So yeah, Mm. hormones are so fun. And like, and, and that's the other thing too, is there's just, there's not enough studies on the perimenopause my lady friends that are, you know, in their fifties and doing the whole menopause thing. And they're like, the doctor just didn't tell me anything. They're like, I just have to live this. And like, there's luck. Yeah. I'm like, oh, cool. I can't wait. I'm like, where are the billionaire women that are going to save us? <laughs> there is a doctor and I can't believe that I'm forgetting her name right now. Cause I, I reference one, but the issue is that some of her information has been really, really helpful. She even has like some product lines that are super helpful and all the things that we are talking about. And then I'll see stuff where it's like full on feels like diet culture for perimenopause and menopause. And I'm like, it's like, so it's really frustrating for me. Cause it's like, on one hand, she's got great information and her products are good. And then on the other hand, I'm like, <laughs> and I don't know if she's intentionally doing it or that's just the marketing. That's how people are still buying into that's what gets them to click versus these other things that we want them to click on. So, yeah. I don't know who you're referring to specifically, but Dr. Rachel Rubin is a urologist and a fellowship trained sexual medicine specialist in DC. Mm-hmm. And she is Dr. Rachel Rubin on Instagram and does a ton of education on genital urinary symptoms of menopause. So she mm-hmm. is the person who I see like crusading for research and education and better treatment surrounding menopause on social media and both like professionally. And is somebody that I recommend a lot of my perimenopausal people follow just because she is super passionate about educating people on all of this stuff. Well, yeah, that is not the same person. <laughs> and I follow. Yeah, we do. We do follow her because I know I've, she has some great posts. Yeah. It's one of those things. I think I was talking to a friend who's like, when you do go through and this happens with a lot of our older clients as the conversation of how when we lack estrogen in menopause, then our body creates a little bit of extra body fat to help boost the hormone production to support our body. And that this is just like a totally natural, normal thing that happens. But yet we're still stuck in this diet culture world where we're like, but I don't want to have any belly fat. I don't want to have mm-hmm. any, you know? And so that's, I think that's probably what Beth is talking about is they're like, reduce belly fat, do this. And it's like, ah, can we just focus on what is normal and natural and like support that instead yeah. of always trying to focus on having to look or be a specific way? Yeah. I mean, healthy looks different for everybody. And there's this one person on social media that I follow. And what she always says is your aesthetics don't define your athletics. And like, I think you could expand that even more that like the way that you look does not actually at all indicate your health. 
And I know that you guys talk about that a lot as well. So that's not news, but but yeah, it's a problem for sure. Well, is there anything else that we missed in talking about public floor health that you want people to know or or something that we missed that we didn't feel like we covered a lot? Yeah, we covered a lot. No, I mean, the only thing that I really want people to know is like, no matter where you are in your life, no matter how long you've had symptoms, whether you have the bandwidth for it now or not, it's never too late or too early to start addressing pelvic floor conditions. So if you're listening to this and you're like, shoot, I've had these symptoms forever. Don't worry. You haven't missed the boat. And if you are like, wow, I'm late because I'm giving birth tomorrow and I never saw a PT during pregnancy, same thing. You're never going to be too late. And no matter where you are, there is a lot that can be done to help. Awesome. Can you just share where we can find you, where our listeners can find you? Totally. You can find us at our website, which is www.ladybirdpt.com. You can follow us on Instagram at ladybirdpt.com, on Twitter at ladybirdpt.com, and on YouTube. I think it's just (laughs) ladybirdpt. All right. You You got it all. You can email us at contact at Ladybird PT. Yeah. How did, what's, where does the name come from? Ladybird PT. Ladybird Johnson. Oh, okay. And then just Ladybird Physical Therapy. We were dreaming up names for like weeks and trying out all of these things. And I was like with a group of friends and with my friend who I was actually originally planning on starting Ladybird with. And somebody said it and we were like, that's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's how you know it's a good one. We keep our eyes peeled for things in the media or in real life that come from diet culture or that perpetuate diet culture in some way. These are often the subtle ways it creeps in and which is why we are shining a light on it and sharing it with you. Okay, so I saw something that actually at first seemed like a really good idea, but I put them to the test. So I saw this ad where you thought a quiz and then they make you like a recipe book. And it actually looked really well put together. Like they would say like, what are your goals? What, you know, they'd ask you all these questions and then they would show like little photos of like, yeah, pair your rice with this vegetable and this protein. And like, it would, it was just very visual. And I'm such a visual person. And Mm -hmm. I know a lot of our clients are that I was like, whoa, that actually seems like a really cool tool. Okay. So I went in and I did the quiz for fun, but I was okay. like, I'm gonna test them. <laughs> okay. And so I put in like kind of a ridiculous weight loss goal of like five pounds or something where I was like, it, it did not put in my weight. I put in like a relatively average weight for my... Size. So by ridiculous, you mean like something that's like silly. Not as in like well, 50 pounds. No, I meant like, here's kind of what I was thinking. I was like, if I say that pounds. I just want to lose like one pound and I already weigh like 130, like, are they going to still sell it to me? And like, of course they did. Right. But I was just like, I'm going to put this in just to see like if there's, you know, what, what it looks like. And okay. it was just to see how customized it really was. Okay. And it really was just smoke and mirrors. And they're like, yeah, you answered the quiz. We're still just giving you this diet book, right? It's this exact same thing. It was like, here's how you're going to lose five pounds. And they said I could do it in a week or something. (laughs) Well, yeah, of course. Which I was like, yeah, okay. I don't know. So I just, I kind of was like, at first it seemed like a good idea. And then maybe I shouldn't have been hard on them and quizzed them with that kind of trick answer. But they still wanted me to sell me their product and it was still the exact same thing that they were selling everybody else. And so that was, 
I guess par for the course, I'm not shocked. But then, of course, I didn't buy it because it was like $60 for this notebook. For a book? Yeah. Well, and that was if I just got like the digital version. I think it was more if I got the printed version. And then if you wanted to, there was also like an app. Like there were a lot of options. So I also kind of felt like it was not great marketing because they probably should have just been really clear. Like this is the one thing that we do. I proceeded to get like three emails a day from them. That was like, are you Ugh. sure you don't want to buy this book? You can lose your five pounds in a week if you just buy this book. You know? <laughs> so it was just very aggressive. And I almost, I almost did buy it just for the sake of a business expense because I really wanted to see all the single details in there. But it was just like, I knew it was just going to be like the basic same all. So mm. I didn't. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm sure yeah. we can make better so use we can of save our $60. $60. Yeah. I know, I know. But it just was disappointing because I felt like the ad actually was kind of good. So like they almost got me. Yeah. Well, they're getting smarter and smarter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe I'll get some good stuff. I know. I really... Well, I think that maybe because I clicked on that, maybe I will have adjusted my algorithm because I think I got out of diet world algorithm just over the last few weeks. I will tell you, I ate the most disgusting while I was traveling. I got to a hotel really late and the only thing around me was fast food. And I just really wasn't like, really want that. So anyways, I got this really nasty protein bar from like the hotel, like little snack shop that they have. I love Hampton and I don't know why that it's just like consistency of their product across the United States works well for me. So anyways, but I have to say, oh, that protein bar was so, so nasty. It was only two grams of sugar. I got all the labels, but it was either that or chips. So that is what I ate was those diet. Well, I guess it's not diet. It is because they're like, they're promoting the high protein, 20 grams, and then like no sugar in it. And let me tell you, my taste buds were not too thrilled. Did you wish you'd gotten the fast food? No, I just needed to eat something. You're just like, you're, you just know that if you don't yeah. eat, you won't, you won't be able to sleep. And so yeah. I was at that point. So that's what I did. Cause I had like yeah. one of those crazy 4 a.m. wake ups. Oh, no. So just needed to go to bed. But yeah, anyways. Oh, I'm glad I don't you know how people do it. I don't know how people do it. What? Like live off protein bars? Protein bars. Yeah. I mean, it's the same thing. It's just a means to an end. They're like, this is going to help me build muscle or this is going to help me skip a meal so they don't have to eat real food. Right. That is that a perfect example of a very strong temporary willpower because, you know, have you ever met anyone that's done that their whole life? No. No. I mean, not that I'm aware of. I'm sure right. maybe. Right. Well, the, those are usually the situations where they're like, I do bars all day and then help me at night because night is, you know, and you're yeah. like, well, let's stop doing the bars. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, it's good to see you again. It's been a long time. I know. (laughs) We should have a side Marco Polo that's not on a podcast. (laughs) Okay. I know. Well, I sure hope Welcome home. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just Um, glad that this like date opened up on your calendar because I know you have stuff going on next week too. So like it just, it worked out. Oh, my kids are coming back. So yeah, but it works out perfect because I was like, should we just take the summer off while about this traveling? Or, but I was like, no, it actually works out perfect to record every other week. So yeah, I'm all, yeah, I'm only taking off because I, I have to actually go pick them up from camp, and then I'm gonna hang out with them. So yeah. they're on like a real, they're at like real like 
I call it TV camp where you're there for like a really long time. And it's they like, are. and they're doing like all the traditional things that you do at like old guild camp. Cause it's a hundred years old and they're still doing the so same fun. activities. They just have added rock climbing to the mix because that's more <laughs> new than a hundred years ago. So modern. <laughs> so modern. <laughs> that's like the only modern thing they do. All right. I sure hope we gave you something new to think about today and helped you take one more step on your path to freeing yourself from diet culture. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram at path underscore nutrition. If you are looking to work with us, please visit our website at pathnutrition.com to get started. Bye. Bye everyone.